Father, I think this is probably the only time the sermon will be shorter than the scripture reading. <laughs> Let's pray together. Our Lord, we are thankful for this morning, thankful for your word. There really is life there and truth to be believed. So we pray that this word would come alive to us. Oh, Spirit, would you invade our hearts in these moments and cause us to be moved by the gospel, cause us to act, cause us to believe and think differently. Uh, we need your spirit, O oh God. And so cause our hearts to be uh, tuned in and not distracted by the worries of this world or the concerns that are on our hearts. Instead, point us to Jesus Christ in more uh, ways than we can imagine. It's in Christ's name that we pray. Amen. Uh, the fast food chain Chick-fil-A has become a beloved uh, and magical place for many people. It's been, for me, an immense place where I've gained weight and gone many times on a, on a Sunday afternoon even to be disappointed because they're closed on Sundays. This amazing fast food restaurant is closed on Sundays. But uh, Chick-fil-A is this amazing place that, that the country loves. But over the years, Chick-fil-A has been in the news uh, in ways that perhaps we've not expected. Um, Chick-fil-A, if you remember a few years ago, the CEO of this chain restaurant was asked by a Christian publication what his views were on some moral issues and things revolving around the family and marriage. And Dan Cathy, the CEO of Chick-fil-A, answered from his perspective uh, as a Christian based on the Christian faith. And if you remember this, it was all over the news. There was an uproar all across our country because of the way in which he phrased and gave his view and asked a question on his view. Uh, when, when this happened, people actually began to protest and boycott Chick-fil-A. People actually protested by going into Chick-fil-A to show their opposition to this restaurant. Even politicians like the mayor of Chicago, Rahm Emanuel, weighed in by saying Chick-fil-A's values are not Chicago's values. Or our own current mayor, before he was the mayor of Philly, Mayor Kenny, he said that what Dan Cathy said was akin to hate speech. Uh, all over the country, there were, there were words and, and opinions given of what this man, CEO, the CEO of Chick-fil-A, was expressing as he was asked. And despite the circumstances in which he spoke or the words that he spoke, that's not my point here. But I think what we began to learn during that time in this state of our country or even society at large is how the country and society sees certain issues in the world and how far we've actually come. Uh, because I think if the same response was given by Dan Cathy, say 15 or 20 years ago, we most likely wouldn't have had this uproar the way that we've had. People perhaps wouldn't have responded in the ways that we have because the climate of how we see things as a society has drastically changed. Experts say that. Even Christian historians will look back at the past 20 years and then look back even further and say there's been a significant change in how we view things in our westernized world. We've entered into this new era where to disagree with someone or to disagree with even someone else's lifestyle is almost like you hate them when perhaps you don't. You might just have a different view. But we live in this era where being a Christian especially is difficult because so much around us, so much of what we believe and the world believes tends to be in opposition with one another. The climate of this country, the culture of this country is rapidly changing. And when you hear things like that, especially in, in a church like this, I, I think some of us may curl up and feel a little, a little tense because it sounds like we're pitting the, the church and Christians against the rest of the world. And 
I want to say that that's not our hope at all. We do want to say, especially if you're here this morning and you're not a Christian, or if you're struggling to believe or finding the Lord and finding faith in something, we want you to hear that more than anything, we want you to feel loved here and know Jesus Christ. We love you. We want more than anything for you to hear this good news and to receive it. Uh, it's not that the, the church or Christians or the world are against each other, but sometimes it feels that way in very real ways. But I would say that it seems like as the culture and climate of our, our world is changing, it does seem like the world is more hostile to the church as we move on. Uh, and I want you to hear that the world that we're living in is constantly changing. Even if you were to look back over this past 1,600 years, for example, over history, all over the westernized world, Christian belief and, and the church actually, and, and the state was actually much more intertwined over time. The church and state were where you went for religious beliefs, cultural beliefs, political views. And to be honest, there's been a lot of harm because of that. If you look throughout the corridor of history, you will see blood on the hands of Christians, and it's not always worked out well. But it is true that there's been so much more of a relationship between the world and the Christian church. That said, if you're living in the 21st century in a westernized world, in a place like Philly, perhaps you find yourself increasingly noticing that you're living with faith in a world that looks very different from what the world would say. There's, there's almost a sense in which these two worlds often collide, and we feel it when we live out in this life. When we find ourselves in that kind of place, what do we do? When we feel this separation between what we live and what the world believes, what do we tend to do when we get into those kinds of spaces? When we're at work and we're having conversations with a coworker about some complex social issue, for example, and you have this internal conflict within you, or when you're in a group of people on a, uh, within a conversation on a hot button topic and you sort of edge away with it, hoping someone sees you, you don't want to share your opinion because you know what people will think about you. What's the first temptation we have when your faith and your world collide? As I heard one pastor say this week, it's either to withdraw or to privatize. Either to withdraw or to privatize. To withdraw from the world and not engage it at all. To set, so separate yourself that you're just in this Christian bubble and you want nothing to do with the world. Or you could privatize your faith. Right? You can sort of compartmentalize it and say, church is for church and I'm going to bring that into church. Maybe my home, but nowhere else. I'm going to leave that to my private life and we will privatize it. Right? Where Jesus is not the sun that you orbit around. He's not life-defining. He may be Sunday-defining. Uh, he is not everything. He's in some things. And so as we see and look into this world of Christian living, Christian faith, almost in opposition to the, uh, the, the way the world thinks and lives, we see that in the passage that Kurt read for us this morning. Paul actually stands before a very similar, definitely different, but a similar kind of a society who, much like ours, does not have his back. The society is not for him. The world is not for him and championing uh, what Paul is about and what he's living for. He is living and walking and speaking with the people who very much oppose him. Because what's Paul's context? Uh, what is Paul's context? It's a place, would you hear, that Christians are put in prison. Paul's context is a place in which Christians are fed to lions. Paul's context is a place in which if you believe and profess faith and you go against what is believed at that time, you are boiled alive. You're crucified upside down. That's the kind of an era that Paul is living in during this time. When you think of that, 
chicken sandwich boycotts and mean tweets don't sound all that bad. Right? Paul's context is very much in opposition, not just verbally, not just socially, but physically. They are in opposition to the very gospel that Paul and us would proclaim. And yet, I want to say, though this is you know, 2,000 years removed, though our scenery is different and our circumstances may be different, we are confronted with very similar questions that they themselves had to answer in the early church. Decisions on the ground that they had to make. Truths that they had to not just believe but live out. In fact, Paul is facing a society and a people in Acts 21 and 22 that violently disagreed with him. Because if you have been with us over the past few weeks, as we've been working through the book of Acts, you know that Paul has been making his way to Jerusalem, right? There's been weeks and weeks of him making his way towards Jerusalem. It's cost him what? It's cost him a lot. It's cost him relationships. It's cost him security. It's cost him safety. Because as Paul was getting ready to go into Jerusalem, the Holy Spirit himself told Paul, listen, as you go there, what's awaiting you is not roses. It's not, it's not going to be great for you. It's imprisonment. It's, it's affliction. It's, it's suffering for you that's going to be awaiting you. And you remember Paul's friends and, and fellow Christians calling him to stay, but Paul continuing to make the journey towards even what he knows is going to be hard. And what happens as soon as Paul finally gets to Jerusalem? What happens? It's in Acts 21.30. It says, Then all the city was stirred up, and the people ran together. They seized Paul and dragged him out of the temple, and at once the gates were shut, and they were seeking to kill him. And right away, all that Paul expected, all that Paul feared, is beginning to happen. They're dragging him out of the temple. They seized him, ready to kill him. Just like that, all that was feared is now about to happen. As Paul stands just footsteps before his death, just inches away from his death, what we, what we see from Paul is deeply inspiring. Right? This man, Paul, is on, in the footsteps of his death, and he, would not, he does not act in the way that you might think or that you, you and I might think. He does not respond to the fate of his very life in the way that you might think. Rather, as we read here in Acts 21 and 22, this is deeply inspiring stuff. We see a very courageous Paul standing in direct opposition to all those who are against him here in Acts. It's a courage that's more than about just banishing fear. It's a courage that just is more than just, hey, you, you can do it. You can, you can try hard and you can, you can push through this fear. It's more than just that. It's a courage that is not just hopeful and optimistic. No, it's the courage that, that is rooted and birthed profoundly by a knowledge of the gospel of Jesus Christ. This kind of courage is different than any other courage that you can see in the world. Christian courage, my friends, is this morning, as we'll see, a very profound and life-changing kind of a courage. And so as we look at Paul and how he responds to these death threats and his very life being on the line... The question that I want to ask us and think about is, how do we get that kind of courage? How do we get that kind of courage in the world that we live in today? Though the scenery is different, some of the challenges are exactly the same. How do we look at Paul's life when you even look at your own life and say, I don't think I'm like that. I don't think I'm that heroic. I don't think I have that much fortitude and, and faith. How do I get that kind of courage that Paul has? And so... This morning, 
as we consider these, this text, I want us to be thinking and believing three things out of Acts 21 and 22. Three things that I want to hear for how to gain Christian courage. One, we can gain Christian courage by thinking less of ourselves and more of others. Two, we can gain Christian courage by seeing the forest from the trees, and I'll explain that. Three, we can gain courage by remembering the courage of Christ. First, we can gain Christian courage by thinking less of ourselves and more of others. As we jump into Acts 21 and 22, as Paul's life is on the balance and the people of Jerusalem, his own Jewish people, his own flesh and blood, want him dead, we pick up at Acts 21:35. It says, and when he came to the steps, he was actually carried by the soldiers because of the violence of the crowd. For the mob of the people followed, crying out, away with him. As Paul was about to be brought into the barracks, he said to the tri tribune, may I say something to you? And he said, do you know Greek? Are you not the Egyptian Paul, then who was recently stirred up a revolt and led the 4,000 men of the assassins out into the wilderness? And Paul replied, no, I'm a Jew from Tarsus in Cilicia, a citizen of no obscure city. I beg you, permit me to speak to the people. And when he had given him permission, Paul, standing on the steps, motioned with his hand to the people. And when there was a great hush, he addressed them in the Hebrew language. And then he began to speak. And that's what we see in chapter 22. Would you know that even with Paul's own life on the line, there's this tremendous calm where he even in the original language speaks with such politeness and calm and coolness where he's about to die and Paul's like, may I speak with you a moment? I mean, it's tremendous that this, this brother's life is on the line and as we'll see, he's not even going to ask for them to save him and to be kept from death. That's not even what he's going to say. Paul's composure and calmness is inspiring, and you wonder where he's getting it from. Paul is on the brink of death, and his words will be what condemns him. And yet he asks this commander to this, to this person over him, may I speak with the crowd? Right? He doesn't, he doesn't go in and say, you know what, I, don't, I actually don't believe everything you're hearing. I recant. He doesn't say, I'm a good person. Just let me live. You don't know the real Paul. Let me live. He doesn't say any of that. But what does Paul actually begin to say to this bloodthirsty crowd that wants to kill him? Paul, as we'll see, actually shares his own testimony in a few words. I mean, they thought he was speaking things that were offensive before. As Paul begins to speak, their anger for him will probably get a little bit deeper and a little bit more opposing. And so in Acts 22, Paul begins and addresses this crowd in Jerusalem. As brothers and fathers, right? You can tell that Paul is trying to win them. He is trying to win them. Not to save his life, but that they might believe what he's about to say. He says, brothers and fathers. He tells them that I was from this city. Perhaps there are people listening to him who saw him grow up and saw little Paul get older and rise in stature. Perhaps people remembered Paul. This was his city. This was his people. And not only that, Paul it says in Acts 22, says that I was educated by the best of them, Gamaliel. He was the one who everyone knew and respected. He was well-learned. Paul, what else does he say? He says he was zealous for God. He's zealous for God just like you. And so you see Paul trying to make inroads to these people who are deeply opposed to him. And that, what else does he say? He even says, listen, I am just like you to the point where I've been on your side of this. I was the one who persecuted and tortured 
and pursued and killed Christians like me. That was me. I was just like you. And so you'd imagine this crowd is saying, what makes us so different then? Paul is making all these inroads, so, so many similarities with them. And then as he speaks, as he continues to speak, Paul says, listen, I was on the road to even pursue and kill and punish more Christians. But as I was walking that road, do you know what happened to me? I was walking the road to Damascus. And all of a sudden, Jesus Christ himself, the risen Christ, came and appeared to me. And this Christ, the Son of God, he saved me. I was trying to kill those who followed him and trusted him. And this Christ appeared to me as I was going to do that. And he saved me. He washed my sins away. I was baptized. And he was commissioned, Paul, to take this gospel to others that they might hear it and be saved as well. As Paul is speaking, these people who are listening to him can notice that he even uses words like wash and baptism. These are not foreign words to those who are listening. In fact, they are words that are very familiar to the Jewish people, except baptism was reserved for the Gentiles, people who believed and wanted to follow the God of Israel but had to be baptized in because they were filthy, they were unclean, they were not like Israel. But Paul, as he's sharing that he himself was baptized, was making the claim that, listen, I was a Jew, I am unclean. It's not my nationality. It's not my, my, my designation as an Israelite that has made me clean. I myself am clean. And you know what by implication that means? Uh, you are dirty and you need to be cleaned. And you can feel the offense. For, for centuries, for, for millennia, these Israelites all of a sudden being likened to Gentiles. This man, Paul, once a Christian slayer, is now a Christian spokesman. He is preaching the very gospel that he once despised, right? And when you think about that scene on the, road of, on the road to Damascus that Paul describes, would you notice that the fact that Jesus Christ saw him and saved him has just humbled him to the dust? Because he doesn't, he doesn't have some status he's trying to live up to at this point, right? He had all the resume in the world. And yet, the gospel of Christ has so humbled him to the ground that he puts it all out there. He admits, listen, I know I look like a hypocrite. I was like one of you. He admits he needed saving and cleansing. Paul has nothing to prove and nothing greater than this gospel to offer them. Paul is humbled by the gospel to the dust that this gospel is worth giving to them. And hear this. For Paul, the gospel is just not theory. The gospel is just not something we come in on a weekly basis and say to one another and, and then go on and come back the next Sunday. For Paul, he writes to this later, for Paul, the gospel was the all-surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, that this thing is so worth it that no matter what it takes, you need to hear this. Even as I'm shackled with two chains, ready to die, this gospel is so immense and so life transforming and life-altering, that this is a gospel. If only you would know it. This thing is worth it to the point that with my very words, I know I'm condemning myself. But I believe this thing so much that I'm going to tell you. You may look at Paul, right? Paul is this gigantic figure in the New Testament in the Bible. Paul has written scripture, right? We, ha we, we have commentaries written on him. We, we have books written about Paul. Uh, it's tempting to look at this man, Paul, and see him as greater than he actually is. 
It's tempting to see Paul as sort of like a superhero in this kind of a text or in the, in the New Testament when he acts in this courageous, admirable, inspiring way. But the reality is that Paul bleeds like you and me. Paul puts on his jacket or his cloak one, one sleeve at a time. Paul is very much like you and me. He has family and friends that he loves. Right? He, I'm sure he has a reputation that he doesn't just want to sully and ruin. I don't imagine that he enjoys imprisonment and torture. And what's more, and perhaps more relevant to our text here today, what's more, it's not like Paul is immune from fear. It's not as if Paul doesn't have questions or doubts or struggles in his mind as he's standing at the steps speaking to these people. It's not as if Paul has nothing in his heart that is keeping him from moving forward. But would you know that courage, dear friends, is about more than banishing your fears. As if the, the sight of fear, the presence of fear means you don't have courage. Courage, as we've said here before, is about more than banishing your fears and simply getting over them. One man named James Hollingworth puts it well when he says, Courage is not the absence of fear but rather the judgment that something else is more important than fear. It's not the absence of fear, but it's saying that thing is so worth it. It's more important than this fear. So I'm going to step forward. I'm going to move into this. Paul is saying with his life, with his words, on the steps in Jerusalem, that their salvation, the people who are listening, is worth more to him than their approval of him, for example. It's worth more. It's worth more. His own self-preservation is not Paul's aim in life. His, his aim in life is not to step up the corporate ladder. His aim in life is not to move into that neighborhood. His aim is, in life is not to have more friends and to have more people like him. Listen, Paul has his fears. Death is at the door for Paul, and yet Paul makes the decision to say that, though I fear, my belief in this gospel if this gospel is real, tells me that it is worth enduring all of these fears and walking through them no matter the cost because this gospel and then knowing it is worth more than being paralyzed by my fear to their ruin. This gospel is that important that it's worth giving everything to. Man, that's, that's a really high bar for us to live up to, right? When you look at Paul, it's hard to not get intimidated and say, I just can't do that. What a struggle this is in everyday life for us, right? When you're sitting across the table from someone during your lunch break or shooting the breeze with your neighbor on a, on a Sunday afternoon or sitting in a car dealership waiting for your car to get repaired like I was this past week in a waiting room, right? That's where I was this week and I was confronted this, with this kind of an opportunity, I find that when I give an illustration of my attempts at sharing the gospel, it's often because of my failures. That's how you learn through me, from my failures. And yet, listen, the Lord is able to do works in us, even though our personalities are different, and even though these kinds of things are hard, the Lord is actually able to, to do this kind of work. Because I really struggle to get down, if I were to be honest, from this pulpit, and I can preach here for 40 minutes, but a five-minute conversation with someone about Jesus and his gospel really frightens me, right? It's, it's easier to sort of declare and proclaim things from here because no one's talking back at you. But when you're across the table from someone and they have pushback and they have questions and they have disagreements and you want them to like you, it's, it's a whole different ballgame when you're there. And yet, can I tell you, by God's grace, 
When I was in that waiting room this past week getting Steph's car fixed, I spoke to a Muslim man for nearly two hours about the gospel of Jesus. And if you know me, that's a miracle. (laughs) That's not me. That's just not me. The, The Lord enabled my heart to be awakened to his gospel in a way that said, this gospel is so important that you need to hear it. And can I tell you, this brother, this Muslim brother, pursued me, right? He, he thought I was Muslim because of my fantastic beard. And I, I tried to push him away. And then he came and visited me in the waiting room, and he struck up conversation with me. I had literally nothing to do with this. And yet the Lord, as I was even having this, this text on my mind, like, what is this gospel worth if it's not worth a conversation like this with someone that's uncomfortable and not me, Right? The Lord can do this kind of work. He shared his faith with me, and I shared mine with his. We left the conversation exchanging numbers, hopefully to meet again. I have no idea what's going to happen. But I do know in those moments, in those few moments together with him, my heart was in turmoil. My mind was racing. I was thinking about everything I said. I asked questions to myself, like, what if, what if he asks a question and I just can't answer it? To be honest, I almost felt like he knew more about his religion and my religion more than I knew about my own. I had questions of, these people at this repair shop, they know me. What if they walk by and they hear me saying this craziness? What are they going to think of me? I also thought, I've got work to do. I'm here for three hours. I'm not going to waste it talking to you about the gospel, which is crazy. I mean, all kinds of thoughts going through my mind. And yet, I realized that in all these questions that were racing around in my mind, the one thing that actually stood out and actually made me move towards him was that I feel like I have a lot more love for myself than for this man. It was my ego. It was my reputation. It was my comfort, my time, my even intellect and ability to be able to share this gospel with him that I was putting far above him, far more worth it did I I count my life than his. But this man's soul was on the line. It doesn't rest on me, but the Lord uses people like us to be able to bring a gospel to someone. And so I thought, this this gospel, it has to be worth it enough where a conversation is had. I couldn't allow myself, the love I had for myself, to ruin this opportunity, no matter if I failed or not. So friends, listen, as we consider courage, it's not that you don't move into the fears that you have, be it at work, be it with a family member, be it at a coffee shop or with your neighbor. It's saying that I love this brother, I love this sister more than I love myself because I believe in this gospel so much that this is something that you need to hear. So enter relationships that make you uncomfortable. Pursue people that make you uncomfortable. Pursue courage despite the fear and think less of yourself and more of others. Two, what's the second way that we can gain courage? We can gain courage by seeing the forest from the trees. As we continue in Acts, when when Paul tells his testimony before these people, he encounters, as we've said, on that road to Damascus, the risen Christ. He encounters the risen Christ. And for Paul, this really matters, that, that the risen Christ actually appeared to him. Because the Christian movement that Paul spent his life persecuting, And going against, he actually never encountered it himself face to face. He's never encountered the the, the truth and the, the people that he spent so much time persecuting. He knew of Jesus. He knew that he lived. He knew that he was crucified. He knew that he was buried in a grave. 
And yet on this road, this Jesus that he thought was in the grave actually appeared bodily resurrected to him. And so that fact really mattered to Paul. When Paul experiences the resurrected Christ, everything breaks open for him. Would you hear that? The resurrection of Jesus Christ actually makes a difference for how Paul thinks about this whole thing. Because not only does this mean that Jesus Christ is true and is Lord and that Paul can be saved and cleansed of his sins, but Jesus' own resurrection from the grave means that for Paul, he too can be resurrected. And why does that make a difference for, for Christian courage? How did Paul see the forest from the trees? Because as he saw the resurrected Jesus, everything Paul experienced and saw and lived out in his life since that moment was in light of this reality beyond this world. To the resurrection beyond the grave, not only of Jesus Christ, but of his own. The resurrection really mattered for Paul. This is why, as you think of Paul's ministry, you think of a juggernaut like this, this hero in the New Testament. This is why Paul's witness had so much force and so much support. The Holy Spirit enabled this man, through the, through the work of his hands, by the empowerment of God, to be a force for the gospel in this time. Uh, amazingly, amazingly, through his life, it was filled with pain. It was filled with struggle. We read in his writings that his, his mind was filled with anguish. It was not without fear or doubt. And yet, as much as Paul struggled with all of this, with the pain and the suffering and the, the mental anguish of following Jesus and proclaiming the gospel, nothing, nothing can overwhelm this man who, whom God was behind. Nothing could overwhelm him. Imagine how frustrating this man Paul was for those who were persecuting him. Do you think of that? How frustrating would it have been for those who were trying to persecute Paul to do the persecution on him? As I heard one preacher this week, he said, Paul is the kind of person where they would say, we're going to imprison you, Paul. And then Paul says, okay, I'm going to convert the jailer. And then Paul, they say, we're going to kill you, Paul. And then Paul says, it's okay because I consider this life is, is momentary compared to the eternal weight of glory that is waiting me in glory. They said, okay, we're not going to kill you. Then we're going we're to let you live. And Paul says, okay, to live is Christ. I mean, no matter what they tried to throw at him, Paul believed this gospel, whether through life or through death or imprisonment, it was all good because this brother had seen a life beyond this one that was eternal, that was secured through the resurrection of Jesus Christ. He sees the eternal forest from the trees of suffering and discomfort and shame even to the point of death. Paul looks down at all that this costs, and he says, yes, I know how this whole story is going to end, and it's going to end well. I know it's going to end well. The, po the poet George Herbert has written this beautiful poem uh, called The Dialogue Anthem, and this is a, a poem that's written between a Christian and death. And this poem, I won't read the whole thing, but I want to read just this last section. And this is the kind of mindset, the one who believes the gospel, who believes that there is life beyond this, lives in light of the gospel. It begins in this last section, after death intimidates the Christian and reminds him of his eventual death, the Christian says and responds to death, says, spare not, do thy worst, ye shall only make me one day better than before, thou so much worst that thou shall be no more. 
And it's this idea that even death itself cannot be used as a weapon against us. Because Jesus has actually defeated even death. And for the Christian, when you witness, when, when you give up your reputation, when you do even give up your life if it costs you that, we're saying that even death does not have a power over us. So if that's true, what does it look like to be courageous with the gospel, knowing that this life is, is, is more than this life, but there is a life beyond this. There is no weapon. There's not even death that could be wielded against us. For even death has been made a servant to the one who is trusting in Christ. This is the kind of resolve with the eternal nearness of our Father that even a man like Martin Luther King Jr., when he was fighting for justice, fighting for truth, fighting to believe, wrote about as tensions during the civil rights movement began to increase. This is some of what he wrote as he neared that time. It seemed as though I heard an inner voice saying, Stand up for righteousness. Stand for truth. God will be at your side forever. Almost at once, my fears began to pass from me. The outer situation remained the same, but God had given me inner calm. Three nights later, our home was bombed. Strangely enough, I accepted the word of the bombing calmly. My experience with God had given me new strength and trust. I know now that God is able to give us the interior resources to face the storms of life. There is a sense in which knowing the gospel, knowing where you've come from, Knowing where you're going gives you a posture, a disposition, an interior resource, the ability to see this life in a totally different way. And when it comes to your sharing of the gospel, when it comes to your taking risks, when it comes to any decision in your life, listen, Christian, you are seeing it through different eyes. When you, when you go through moments of turmoil, there's an inner calm that believing in Jesus gives you. Whatever the storms of life are around you, there is an inner calm that this brings. Christian courage is not defined by this inner strength that's just by ourselves or this inner might that we conjure up on our own. It is rather the truth that there is reality beyond this life, a reality that is so much more real than this one. If you could and I could only in the, the, the darknesses of life or in a room like that when you have the opportunity to share the gospel with someone, only if we had the eyes to see a thousand years from now and then to look back at this moment, I think it'll change the way that we speak. I think it'll change the way that we witness to one another. I think it'll change the way that we boldly proclaim the gospel, even though our reputation might be on the line. Listen, the Roman Empire, the time in which Paul was around, sought to destroy Christianity during Paul's ministry and after it. And yet today, the Roman Empire, you can take a flight over to Rome, pay 10 bucks to tour the ruins of the Roman Empire. You can walk through the ruins of the greatest empire that ever existed in the history of the world. And this past week, I was hearing of one pastor who did that. He went overseas with a group of a bunch of other pastors from different countries all over the world, walking through the ruins of this great Roman Empire that sought to kill and to destroy Christianity. And as he was walking through these ruins, he had this deep reminder that every other kingdom in the world would one day be undone, but the kingdom of God, it lasts forever. And if it lasts forever, wouldn't be, this be the kingdom that we proclaim? Wouldn't this be the, the kingdom that we shout from the mountaintops, even though we're not perfect at sharing it? We get to do that together. Wouldn't this be the kingdom that we are living for and living about? Wouldn't we give our lives to this thing? Friends, see the forest from the trees. Be courageous 
For in the end, we will win. Our Savior wins. Our end is not defeat. Our end is eternity. So that should free us to be courageous even through the fears of this life. Lastly, how else do we gain courage in this life? We can gain courage, Christian courage. This is perhaps most important. We can gain Christian courage by remembering the courage of Jesus Christ. We can gain courage, find inspiration for courage in this life as we look to Jesus Christ, the one who had the most courage. Would you know that even as you consider the the big world religions of the world, Jesus is the only one that actually would require courage. Why? Because Jesus Christ, who is God, who had everything in the world, who had all the riches, all the power, pre-existed before time, made himself low and made himself a man so that he would feel the fears that we actually fear. He became vulnerable. So where there is fear, there is need to be If there was no fear, there's no need for courage. And yet Jesus felt the fears that you and I fear as we walk through this world, as think Jesus himself proclaiming the kingdom of God, Jesus himself being the gospel himself. Jesus felt fear as he walked down the road, as he, as he was in, for example, the garden of Gethsemane, weeping with tears and blood, with the cross before him. Jesus wept in that garden of Gethsemane. One pastor, Tim Keller, puts it this way. The greatest act of courage in the world was found in the Garden of Gethsemane. The greatest act you can ever lay your eyes off of courage in the world was in the Garden of Gethsemane. That night, Jesus could have left. He could have left and never have seen the cross. Right? This was his chance to, to leave. And he even thought about it. He even spoke to his father about it. Right? Because if he left at that moment, he would have been gone. But if he continued, once he's down the path headed toward the cross, he's done. He's going to be crucified. There's no way out once you're there. And so with the fear of, of death impending, of pain, of not only physical pain, but the sins of the world bearing down on him, Jesus saw the fear and did not leave. Jesus pushed on. Hear me, Jesus was a man He was not immune from the fears that you and I face, the deepest fears. And yet Jesus thought not of himself in those moments, but thought of you. Jesus did not think about himself. He thought you were were worth it. Jesus saw the forest from the trees. He knew that there was eternity waiting on the other side in which he would be reunited with his father. And the saints that he has saved would be with him in eternity. That grave was not the end. That reputation was not the end. He saw something beyond it. In fact, we see this played out in Hebrews 12 as as the writer talks about fixing our eyes on Jesus Christ. The writer exhorts us, let us run with endurance the race that is set before us, looking to Jesus, who for the joy that was set before him endured the cross, despising the shame Seated at the right hand of God, consider him who endured from sinners such hostility against himself so that you may not grow weary or faint-hearted. The courage that Jesus produced and lived out in actually enables you and I to be courageous in this world. His courage enables us to say, spare not death, do your worst. So Seven Mile Road, as you hear all of that, would you hear... We live in grace. We live with a knowledge of the gospel. We don't live because we have 
immense courage. We are not saved because we have immense courage that never breaks down. Thankfully, the Lord does not love us more because we are courageous. He doesn't love us less because we sometimes chicken out and don't say the right things or don't say anything at all. And yet, would you hear, the gospel, there's a lot of power there. There's a lot of truth to believe. If this gospel means everything to you, would you allow it to empower you by God's grace and spirit to be witnesses in this world? Your reputation's on the line. Hard conversations. Relationships perhaps to be reestablished. Relationships perhaps broken as a result of this. But is there anything else worth it than the kingdom of God and his gospel to share with the dying world around us? It's a gospel worth pursuing, giving your life to. Let's pray that God would give us that kind of courage in this world. Let's pray. Our Lord, this, this gospel is...